Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I sort of see you. It's a little dark in the room, but uh, it's good to see you. I know you can see me. Um, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the teachers here at the church. And so we're going to be back in Matthew this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and get to Matthew chapter one. Uh, we're going to be finishing up Matthew chapter one uh, in our time together today. We are in a series on Advent. <clears throat> and uh, I, I kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but Advent is a is a uh, season in the church, in the church calendar, across denominations, across the world, and across centuries, where the church intentionally looks at the advent, the Latin, the Latin word for the arrival of Jesus Christ at Christmas, and then, of course, the second coming, the second advent to come when Jesus returns and fully and finally restores all things. And so I said last week that one of the reasons I think it's important for churches to celebrate Advent is because if you're like me, it's very easy to find yourself Christmas morning or Christmas Eve and just kind of wake up and go, oh my goodness, it's here. And I really haven't been that intentional to actually think about Christ and prepare my heart and to really give him kind of the, the weight of this season. Instead, I'll, I give it to a lot of things that are good things. Uh, celebrations with family, good food, good movies, good music, good gifts, but not the gift of Jesus Christ. And so Advent helps kind of tune our hearts to where we should be in this season in the midst of all those other good things. And the other thing I really like about Advent is it's something that, you know, you never know, you could go into a church anywhere in the world in May or in July and I have no idea where they're going to be in God's word or where they're going to be focusing on. But many, many churches this time of year, we are tuning in, so to speak, with brothers and sisters all over the world and across history in December to celebrate the coming, the arrival, the advent of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we are. We're in a four-week series called A Thrill of Hope, which basically is just a line from the song, Oh Holy Night. But as I thought about the different themes of Advent, we've already done the candle of hope, the candle of peace, there's joy, there's love, there's waiting. There's a lot of different themes along Advent, but the one in particular I thought resonated with me and probably resonated with you this year is hope. It's hope, because hope is a strong emotion. I said that last week, that hope is one of the strongest emotions I think that human beings have. And therefore, it's really strong to tether you in times of trial, to, to kind of keep you rooted in times of waiting and, and wondering when something might, might come. But because it's so strong, it can be catastrophic if you feel like you've lost hope, if you feel like you are now no longer hopeful, but hopeless. It's a strong thing. But the interesting thing is hope in the scriptures is not really an emotion. Hope in the scriptures is bigger than that. Hope in the scriptures is more in tune with faith because hope in the scriptures is an assurance of a future reality. It is an idea that there is a hope, an expectation, a faith that in the future, maybe not now, but in the future, there will be a reality not a hopeful thinking, but a reality that at some point God is going to fulfill his promise. At some point, God is going to come through like you've always believed that he would. And so I thought, man, really hope is, is where I'm finding myself needing to feel, but also needing to have more than an emotion, but to root myself 
and hope. And 2022 has been a hard year for Journey Church. I mean, I'm not gonna berate the point. We've talked about it for nine months now. It's not something I wanna spend a lot of time on, but I just wanna acknowledge that for a lot of us, we need hope because 2022 is emotionally challenging. That we've, we've felt some things and we still kind of feel some things. I talked to many of you throughout the week and I know that there's still some emotions that, that arise that have been hard for 2022. And that's just here. That's not, maybe not even have to do with other things outside of journey that you may have had happen in 2022. So for some of us, it's been emotionally challenging. For, for all of us, it's been relationally challenging. I think there's been certain relationships that we maybe have had that, we, that, are, that are not as frequent, um, and at least in our conversation and communication with them, or maybe in our, in our presence. Um, and that, again, that's just journey. I know some of you have even had relational issues and struggles throughout the year with, with kids or with spouses. It's just a relationally challenging year. It's a spiritually challenging year. We've had to dig deep about what we really believe about certain things. And so when, when you get to the end of the year, you get to, to Advent, man, hope in 2022 for us is something that really resonates with us. So I started last week and I just kind of framed last week, we were in the genealogy of all places of Jesus Christ, the beginning of Matthew. And we came to find that the genealogy is dripping with hope. And the one thing that we really drove home last week was that we have hope for redemption. That what Advent really brings is this idea of hope for redemption. As we look at the genealogy, as we look at what redemption even means to be purchased back or to apply value to, that what we have in Jesus Christ is a deep-rooted hope that he is the one that has come to redeem Israel. He's the one who has come to redeem all of those broken stories that we see in his lineage from Abraham to David and on from there that he came for people of all races, all, all backgrounds that in his name and in his line, we can find hope that he can, and I finished with, the, with that, he can not just take the story of Israel or the story of David or the story of Tamar and redeem it, but that he can step into your story and redeem it. He can apply value to the brokenness, to the messes in your life. Not that we celebrate sin, but that he can take sin when you give it to him and when you own it. And he can actually redeem it and give it value. He can use it in the lives of others to be an encouragement. So that's where we were last week. This week, we're going to turn our attention from something we hope for, like redemption and rest, we talked about last week, and how we actually enter into that hope. And the way we enter into Christmas hope is actually by the fact that Christmas hope entered our world from the outside. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can grab it. Otherwise, we will be on the screen. Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, <clears throat> she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel 
which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So today we're looking at the incarnation of Jesus. That, and specifically what I mean by that is we're looking at the fact that we have hope from his incarnation because we have hope from his presence. But how? How can we have hope from his presence? Because a quick like look through of the Old Testament shows that God's presence usually incites fear, trembling, more than it probably does hope. So what is it about the presence of Jesus being God with us that maybe changes things a little bit for us? And that's the question I want to tackle this morning. And I want to look at it in three ways. I want to look at Jesus' presence and consider his presence under three ideas. Number one, that Jesus' presence is a direct yet divine presence. I also want to see that Jesus' presence is a disorienting yet anchoring presence. And then I want to finish with the fact that Jesus' presence is a delivering presence. So it's a direct yet divine presence. It is a disorienting yet anchoring presence and that ultimately Jesus' presence is a delivering presence, okay? So first, a direct yet divine presence. And let's look at both sides. First, starting, what do I mean by when I say that Jesus' presence is a direct presence? Well, at the beginning of the verses, Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother... Mary. I'm going to stop there. And again, just like last week, I'm going to state something that's probably relatively obvious to you. Jesus was born. He was born. Like me and like you, he was born. He had a mom. Her name was Mary. Rather obvious, but worth saying, Jesus was a human being. Last week, I talked about the fact that there's a family heritage of Jesus, that he came through the line of Abraham and of David. Today, we're talking about the fact that that his birth took place in history to a specific person and was reported as history. Now, why does it matter that Jesus was a human? Well, the first thing I just want to make clear is it matters because that means he's one of us. As a kid, I often thought about Jesus more like Superman, you know, like, yeah, he might be Clark Kent, but really he was always from another planet, really wasn't that human. He was an alien and he was amazing. And I kind of thought about Jesus that way. Sorry, if you don't know that Clark Kent's Superman, I ruined that for you, my apologies. But we talked about that. Like I thought about that as a kid, like that's just who God is. He's kind of like Superman. I didn't really think about the fact that really Jesus came through a womb like us. Jesus got hungry, like us. Jesus got tired, like us. Jesus got betrayed, like a lot of us. Jesus suffered, like us. And if that isn't blind-willing enough, he didn't just show up as a 30-year-old. He came as a baby, like us. I would imagine most of you that are still in the room have held a baby. And it's interesting, like, you're gentle with a baby. You're even kind of weird with a baby. Like you talk weird to a baby, right? What, what, at least you should only talk that way to a baby. But you talk weird to a baby. You even like make funny faces to a baby. 
Like the fact that Jesus was a baby that was like, oh, you you know, it's just, it's weird. It's unique. But he was like us. And to think that God sent the rescuer as a baby. And then just like us, Jesus had to grow up. He had to learn to walk and to speak, to write. And this should bring us comfort. He wasn't a superhero. He was a human being. He walked the earth that he made. And this is what I mean by Jesus' presence was direct. He was in our midst. He could be touched. He could be engaged face to face. But he wasn't merely a direct presence. He was a divine presence as well. Going back to Matthew 1.18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, let the reader understand, she was found to be with child with the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary's conception was a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus may have had a mother, Mary may have carried Jesus in her womb, but Jesus was divine. Matthew is making very clear that Joseph was not his father. That's why he said, before they came together. He shows that Mary was pregnant, not by human or natural means, but by a supernatural miracle. This is how John explains Jesus' divinity. In John chapter one, he says this in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was divine, and Jesus was human. He was a direct yet divine presence on earth. He was eternal, he was timeless, he was limitless, but then he steps into time, he crawls on the ground that he spoke into existence. The son of God left heaven becoming a baby who then looked up at the heavens, cooing, crying, needing to be swaddled. Jesus is God, Jesus is eternal. God is the father of Jesus, yet Matthew says Mary is his mother. Jesus, fully God, fully human. It's a mystery to us, and we call it the incarnation. But so what? Like great theology, so what? What does this have to do with my trouble? What does this have to do with my hope? Is this just some like theological lesson for today? And I just want to say like theologically, it actually really does matter. It matters that Jesus's father was not Joseph because the sin of Adam that is passed down was not passed on to Jesus. It matters that Joseph wasn't his father, that Jesus was holy, that he was God. That matters. And yet it matters that he was like us. It matters that he was Mary's son, that he was human, that he was a human being, that 
came through the womb, that was born, that lived, that grew up, that matters so that he could be like us, that he could stand in our place. That's why he alone is worthy and that's why he alone could do it. He was the God-man. It matters theologically, but practically speaking, it matters too. You see, do you see the, the, the dignity that God gives the human race by coming as a, as a man, by coming as a human? Genesis tells us that God made mankind in his image And then in the ultimate act of love and redemption, God takes on flesh just like those who bear his image. David Guzik, a theologian and commentator, he says this about the incarnation. He says, man really is made in the image of God. There is something essentially compatible with divine being and human being. Jesus didn't subtract from his deity but added human nature to it. There's a dignity given to human nature that God would take on our flesh and then dwell among us. And this means that every person you see has dignity and bears the image of God. If Jesus is God, but came as a human, How on earth do we have the right to demean, to mistreat, to belittle, to apply zero value to another image bearer? And yet, if Jesus came as the Son of God but took on human flesh, that means you, despite what the enemy tells you, despite what your parents may tell you, despite what a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse tells you, you have value. You see, the fact that Jesus is man and God has infinite, applicable, practical meaning and purpose in our life. Dogs, they may be man's best friend, but Jesus did not put on fur and dwell among us. Trees and plants, they may give us oxygen or beauty or food, but Jesus did not put on bark or leaves and dwell among us. Jesus is a divine presence who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He was a divine yet direct presence as a human being in the first century in history. But what we see as you look at the story is that his presence is disorienting. Because when God comes in, it's always disorienting and disruptive. That's the way his presence works. At least it does now. When you read the biblical narrative in the Old Testament, God's presence actually was direct initially as he walked through the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in creation. The presence at that time was not threatening to Adam and Eve. It was comforting. It was anchoring to their souls. They had communion with God. But Adam and Eve decided to be their own God. They ignored his one command. They they thought he was holding out on them. And so they turned from God. And in, in so doing, the result of that was that God cast them out of his presence. Now there's a dissonance between God and creation, a fracture to the ability for us to actually enjoy his presence. And now that in and of itself, the the absence of his presence becomes very disorienting to us. Adam and Eve are, are exiled from the garden, from his direct presence. 
And at that point, that was all they had ever known. You can imagine how disorienting that was for them. From now on in the, in the Old Testament, God speaks at most from a distance. God speaks to Noah, but it's about judgment on the earth and the sin of his people that he made. When God speaks to Job in chapters 38 through 41, it's in a whirlwind. God speaks to Abraham in fire and smoking pot in Genesis 15. God speaks to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus 3. And when Moses asks to see God's face, God says, you would never be able to do that and live. I'll let you see my back. And then when Moses is meeting with God on the mountain, not face to face because Moses would never live, just the glory of God. When Moses comes off the mountain, his face is so bright, the Israelites can't even look at him. This is what it means to even be remotely close to the presence of God. In the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness, God's presence comes in through fire. In the temple that is built by Solomon, God's presence comes in through fire. And both of those times, his presence is in the Holy of Holies. It's hidden behind where anybody could actually get to except for the high priest once a year after he is ceremonially clean and he has made sacrifice for his sins. He can go in and make sins for the nation of Israel. You see, God's presence becomes, yes, with Israel, but it's still shrouded. It's, it's still behind the curtain. It's still not really able to have access to it directly. And when Isaiah in chapter six has a vision of God in his temple in a dream, Isaiah's response at even being in the presence of God in a dream is, woe is me, I am lost. I am lost from a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see the relation to sin and the exile from his direct divine presence? It was impossible to see him apart from once a year when the priests entered to make atonement for Israel. It was, it was sin that banished Israel from his direct presence and it was sin that banished all of humanity from it too. And when you're made, when you and I are made for direct presence with God, it is disorienting not to have it. Even if you don't realize you're made for it. Like a fish out of water, we are not even aware of what's going on other than the fact that we are just not right. We are made to be anchored in this life by his presence. We are his image bearers and are to exercise his dominion. This is what Genesis 2 says, to exercise his dominion on this earth. But since the garden, humanity has been separated from his presence. So while separation from the presence of God was intended to be an anchor, it turns out to be disorienting not to have it. And this is what Israel felt when they were exiled, when they were taken out of their land, when the temple was destroyed. They didn't have a temple. They were not in their land. His presence was not there. They felt disoriented, disconnected, exiled, and lost. And yet here we have in Matthew 1, the angel of the Lord tells Joseph that the baby in Mary's belly will be a fulfilled prophecy from Isaiah 7, that God will be with them. And we find the regaining of God's presence in the middle of history is still disorienting. You can imagine how disorienting this was for Mary and Joseph. 
As we have already read, I'll read again. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. They were planning a life together. They were betrothed, which is a step past engagement in that culture. It was a legal binding agreement. Therefore, that's why it would have required divorce. But yet they weren't technically married yet. The wedding had not happened. <clears throat> and so here they are betrothed. They're, they're making plans like any young Jewish couple would do. Their parents had put them together and said, this, is, this would make both of our families happy. They're legally bound and ready. And the presence of God interrupts their life. And it was quite disorienting. An angel tells Mary that in another, in Luke's gospel, that she, what she conceived as, as a virgin is from God, the Holy Spirit. You can imagine how hard this must have been for her to explain to others and to Joseph. You can hear the whispers in the marketplace. Did you see Mary? She's, she's showing like she's pregnant. I didn't even think her and Joseph were, were married yet. You know, and that starts the prayer chain, right? Not gossip, the prayer chain. Let's, let's pray for Mary. Let's pray for Joseph, bless his heart, right? You can, you can hear the whispers. I heard she claims it isn't even Joseph's baby. Sorry, Joseph. She claims it's this miracle baby because she's still claiming to be a virgin. Have you heard that? That's crazy. I mean, if you believe that, I've got oceanfront property in Nazareth to sell you. I mean, you, you can hear the whispers. You can imagine the disdain and the mockery, and I didn't put it in the notes, but even later in life when Jesus is, is in ministry, there are a group of people that question him and they basically tell him that he was born illegitimately. It followed them their whole life. God intervenes. When God comes to Mary, he doesn't go, now hear me out, here's an idea. Take it or leave it. No, he just disrupts their life. It's disorienting, and if you think, well, Okay, sure, but that's Mary and Joseph, and that's pretty extreme. They, they were, she was the mother of the Messiah. I mean, what about, well, you just look at Israel. The presence of God coming back into their midst at Christmas was very disorienting to the nation of Israel. And we'll look at chapter two next week about how disorienting it was immediately. But even as he gets older, people are very disoriented around him. They, they went into the temple, Mary and Joseph, as was the custom, to get him circumcised and in Luke 2, we find that Simeon and Anna are there prophesying about him. They walk in, and this is what Simeon says in the middle of the temple to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, Luke chapter 2, verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That's disruptive. There's some disorientation that's gonna come. Jesus, this little eight-year-old or eight-day-old baby whose presence would then disrupt and disorient everything in the people of God. And when he's 12, you find him there back at the temple at Passover and he's questioning the teachers and people are amazed. They're like, who is this kid? He's disrupting all kinds of stuff in the temple. And his presence in Israel just increases with age and his ministry grows. And we see Simeon's prophecy coming true that many are rising and many are falling because of Jesus in Israel and his words. And it's not just there. Jesus' presence disrupts and disorients the entire first century. 
Rome wasn't really sure what to make of him. They weren't too alarmed with him until they ended up having to kill him on, on request of some of the leaders. The Pharisees and Sadducees were confused as well. Many people in power hated him. Many commoners loved him. And yet all of Israel or all of history, not just the first century, all of history is marked by his advent. When you write a date on a check or you're writing a date on a paper you submit in class or you open your photos app in your phone and it's organized by the date, it's a reminder of the magnitude of Jesus's advent and his presence. We mark our entire calendars BC and AD across all of history upon the advent of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And therefore you see Jesus's presence is disorienting to everyone, including you and including me. Jesus, the disorienting presence of God that anchors our world in a way that says, you can't ignore me. But what's funny is that if you're like me, we don't expect, don't we just kind of expect when Jesus' presence enters our life that he'll just kind of play along with us in the way we want our lives to go? You see, we see Jesus in the scriptures that he's disruptive or disorienting. He's turning the entire world up on its head by his life, death, and resurrection, and his spirit fills his disciples. But then Jesus' presence enters our lives, and we expect him to be our co-pilot. We're like, you can sit here as long as you don't tell me where to park. As long as you're not like, why'd you go this way? You start getting too mouthy. I'll put you in the back. We want him to co-sign the plan that we have for our lives, to bless our goals, to be our yes man. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not step out of eternity to take on flesh, become a baby to a teenage mother so he could be your Siri to answer your hard questions in life only or to be your homeboy. Jesus is God in the flesh. And his presence in your life is a big deal. And the same for me. And if we really believe that, why on earth would we expect anything other than for him to enter our lives and disrupt some things and disorient some things? He is the glorious one. He's the one with all of the weight, the magnitude. He's the sun that we revolve around. He's the gravitational pull of our lives and of all of history. Wouldn't and shouldn't we expect him to disorient us a little bit? But then wouldn't we expect him to be the anchor that we long for? as the waves toss us to and fro in life. Jesus's presence in your life is God's reinitiated presence in the world that he made. And the presence of Jesus is disorienting because he wants to reorient your life away from you at the center and anchor himself there. but I know me and I know you and I know our culture 
And when we hear Jesus' presence is disorienting, we want to run for the hills. We're not really sure we want that kind of anchor. Maybe life was better when he was more shrouded, when he was out of reach, when his presence was not direct. How can him being a direct yet divine presence, how can he being a disorienting yet anchoring presence be good news? And how can it bring hope? Well, Matthew, I think, tells us that. As we go back to Matthew 1, we look at verse 20. But as, this is Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, <coughs> and he called his name Jesus. The reinitiated presence of God in the world he made brings hope because the goal of his presence is to bring deliverance, or as Jed said earlier, to bring rescue. And he does it in two ways. Notice the angel's declaration to Joseph of what Mary's son will accomplish. Verse 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus comes as a way to save his people from their sins. And again, back to David Guzik, this is how he puts it. Though Jesus meets us in our sins, his purpose is to save us from our sins. He saves us first from the penalty of our sins, then the power of our sin, and then finally when we are in heaven from the presence of sin. So let's take all three of those real quickly. Jesus saves us from the penalty of our sin. Romans says that the wages of our sin, what we earn from our sin is death. That's the penalty. And as we've seen, the penalty is not just death spiritually and eternally, it's separation from God now and forever. That's the penalty of our sin. And every one of us is awaiting that penalty apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ. But Jesus, though he meets us in our sin, he saves us, he delivers us from the penalty of our sin and he gives us the gift of life, life with him now, new life on the inside through what? The presence of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, he saves us from the power of sin. If you read the New Testament, you'll see that you're never gonna be perfect. But you'll also see that you have the power to obtain Holiness. First Peter says that, that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. That God steps in. Sorry, I think that's Second Peter, sorry. But God steps in through the power of his spirit, his presence in our lives. And now we have the power to even avoid sin, to say no to sin. We are not these bystanders that are just like, you know, I, have no, I have no power, I have no choice. No, 
In fact, Romans says that we are no longer slaves to sin if you're in Jesus, that you are a slave to righteousness. He delivers us from the penalty of sin. He delivers us from the power of sin and that one day he will return in all of his power to fully and finally redeem and restore creation where there will be no presence of sin. That thing that you wrestle with right now that you wish you didn't, gone. Darkness, gone. This is what Jesus came to do. Not just to go, you know, I forgive you for that little thing you did. Yes, he does that and we need that, but he's actually come to set us free, to rescue to deliver from sin through the power of his spirit now, through the, from the power of sin. So as we close, I, I want you to see that he came to deliver us from sin, but the last thing we see is that, that Matthew actually connects this salvation of Jesus to presence. Look again as we finish with 21 through 23. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because what was always the cause of separation from God's presence what was always the cause of our separation from his blessed presence of blessing and his anchoring of our souls? Sin. Sin leads to exile from the presence of God. But in Jesus, God doesn't return to the temple in a pillar of fire. In Jesus, God doesn't come in a whirlwind in Jesus, God doesn't allow us to only see his back or shine so bright that we are dead. In Jesus, God doesn't come only after we make the right sacrifice of atonement. No, in Jesus, God came as a baby to live the life from birth to death that we couldn't and don't live to shroud his glory with flesh so he could take our place in the whirlwind of God's justice so he could stand in the fire of God's consuming holiness and so that he could be the atonement for our sins. In Jesus, God crossed the chasm that our sin created, the separation, the exile from the presence of God between his presence of blessing and our presence of sin. He crosses that chasm. He forms the bridge into our exile to bring us hope that we could be restored to him as his redeemed image bears in his presence and filled with his presence. Note Guzik's quote again, though Jesus meets us in our sin, meets us there, presence. His purpose is to save us from our sin. Deliverance. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from spiritual exile. At Christmas, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and brought ultimate deliverance from sin and deliverance from spiritual exile, and he did it by his presence. Presence as God in the flesh as a baby. Presence as God in the flesh all of life to 33 years later as presence of God on the cross for our sin. And presence as God 
in the resurrection and the vindication of the Son of God and the victory over death to deliver us from the penalty and power of sin to transform us into his image to redeem your story and my story to give us rest, to give us hope. Amen. So as we close this morning, a, a call to action. First of all, like if you're a, if you're a non-follower of Jesus, let the delivering presence of Jesus enter your life today by faith so you can be saved from sin and separation. See, Jesus came as God, not so that you should be afraid and tremble. At the first advent, he came to set you free. He came to bring the very anchoring presence of God that you need, that I need, into your life. And the good news of Christmas is that he came. Not that he prepared a way that if you could make it there, you could be in his presence. He came, he brought the presence to us. So if you're not a follower of Jesus right now, my appeal to you is by faith alone to step into the presence of God, to invite the presence of God into your life by repentance, by saying, I, I, I don't want to try to do life my way. I wanna be your child. I wanna be, I want you to be my Lord. And in doing so, by anchoring yourself to this blessing of life and faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved today from the penalty of your sin, from the power of sin. Now, don't get me wrong, if you're not a follower of Christ, you can ask the ones in here that are, being saved from the power of sin does not feel very immediate. But as we, as we struggle forward as his disciples, as we continue to pursue holiness, we begin to find that the power of sin begins to lose its grip by the beauty and grace of Jesus Christ. If, if you're here today as a follower of Christ, my call to action is simply to engage the presence of God in your life. Stop there for a minute. You do know that he didn't just come to save you in like this one-off like exchange transaction. He fills you with his spirit so that you can be his redeemed image bearer about his work in the world, individually and corporately as a church. And then big C church over the world across time. Engage with his presence in your life and find hope as he reorients your life to him. Reorienting is not always fun. And to be honest, I wanna sell you a bill of goods, it's not always painless. It's always worth it. Let him reorient your life in ways in the areas where you're still trying to anchor it yourself and then experience rest and his deliverance of your sin and ushering into his presence. So wherever you are on the map today, I pray that you would allow the spirit to speak 
clearly to you and that you would respond accordingly. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so, we're just blown away by your incarnation. We're blown away, like our our minds cannot fathom your ways, they can't fathom the depth of your love, they can't even fathom, because we've never been you, the depth that you went to save us, to become a baby, to live in our shoes, to walk the world you made, to breathe the air you created, to be the one that holds all things together, as Colossians says, and yet to come and take on flesh. God, would you, first spirit, would you, would you just illuminate us? Would you make us not go, oh, that's good theology, just be completely and utterly undone by this reality? Would it stir up worship in us? And then would your presence that are in your people through your spirit, would it bring us rest today? Would you block, would you block the enemy? Would you guard our hearts and minds from lies? Would you help us to dive deep into the reality of your presence? Would you let us reorient ourselves to you? Would you cause us to be willing participants as you reorient our life around what you called us to? Would you do it for the glory of your name? And would you help us be filled with hope about your first coming and your coming back so that we can be about your business in the meantime? We love you. You are worthy of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.